especially good to see the few visitors we have. I'm particularly excited to see. I have my college roommate here. A lot of you guys think he's my brother. He's not. Obviously, I'm a lot better looking, but look nothing alike. But it's really good to see him today. If you want to turn to Psalm 73, that's where we're going to be for the majority of this lesson. Psalm 73. But before we get there, I have a few questions that I want to talk about. When you look at the world around you, do you think that this life is fair? I'm not going to tell you how to define fair. You can decide that for yourself. But do you think that this life is fair? I'm going to say most of us are going to say no. Because sometimes good things happen to bad people and sometimes bad things happen to good people. We are told from a very young age, life is not fair. Things don't always go your way, even when they should. The question is, how do you deal with that? Because when you're a kid, it may not be that big of a deal, right? Someone cuts in front of you in the lunch line or something like that. But as you become an adult and you realize that those are, that who are really trying to follow God, they suffer. Sometimes they suffer more than we can imagine. And then you look at some of the most powerful, well-off, rich people in this world, and you come to realize that a lot of them are some of the worst of the worst. How do you deal with that? Do you get angry? Do you get frustrated? Do you question God? After all, if God is so good and God is all-powerful, why doesn't God make this world fair? That's one of the questions that as a Christian you will get asked the most often. Why do bad things happen to good people? And it's a tough question. Because there's no answer that feels satisfying to that. But if it helps, we're not the first people to realize that dissonance. We're not the first people to realize that this life isn't fair. The Bible talks about it. And Psalm 73 is one of the places where that's addressed. Psalm 73 is written by a man named Asaph. And Asaph was one of the spiritual leaders of the people. He was a Levite. He led the people in song. And so he is one of the people that the sort of the people of Israel would look up to. And yet, in Psalm 73, we see a great struggle that he has. To the point where this question, why isn't life fair, bothers him so much 
that he thinks about abandoning God altogether. And so we're going to read that together. We're going to read what he struggles with and the conclusion that he comes to that way we can better understand our God and our place in this world. If you're in Psalm 73, we're going to start just with the first three verses. Psalm 73, 1 through 3. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So this introduction here sort of serves as the kind of thesis to the entire psalm. Here's what Asaph wants you to know going in. This is what the psalm's about. God is good to those who are good. But good things happen to bad people. Good things happen to the wicked. And that doesn't make a lot of sense. And it comes to the point where it makes Asaph come close to falling away, we would say. He's, his steps almost slip. Because he sees God is supposed to be good to his children. God's supposed to be good to the good guys. Because God is good. And God is powerful enough to bless the good people. Those who are pure in heart. And yet, it seems that evil is what prospers in this world. How can that be? How can the evil prosper when God is in control? And that conflict really bothers Asaph. It bothers him to the point, like he says in these first few verses, that he almost falls. And that's what the next few verses are going to be about all the way through verse 14. But before we get there, I want you to notice one thing here. Notice the emphasis on the heart. I'll try to bring it out as we go, but the heart comes up. I forgot to count. I think it's, I think it's five times in this psalm. And it's not that long of a psalm. So it is emphasized over and over that these sorts of definitions of good and evil, they are not arbitrary. They are not decided by Asaph. It's not what Asaph feels means good and evil. But if you are good, you are pure in heart. If you are pure in heart, you are good. That's his definition. Those who give their heart to God, those are the good. And the wicked are those who are not pure in heart. The wicked are those whose hearts are dedicated to sinful pursuits and to violence and all kinds of bad things. And that's the dividing line you'll see throughout this psalm. So notice as Asaph brings out heart, and like I said, he'll do it five or six times, notice what he puts the emphasis on, what their heart is dedicated to, because that's his dividing line between the good and the evil. 
where their heart is. All right, so let's pick back up in verse 4. And let's read verses 4 through 14 together. And let's see what Asaph realizes about the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them, and they find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So you see what Asaph is saying here? He's saying, there are some pretty bad guys out there. People that are dedicated to violence, to oppressing the poor, to speaking out against God, and causing others to question God and say, does God really know what's going on down here? Does God really have control over any of this life? They are the worst of the worst. Their heart is overcome with folly. And yet, they don't face hardship. Because we would look at that, or Asaph would at least look at that, and he's like, okay, these are the bad guys, right? So you know what's coming to them. God's going to come down in judgment, and he's going to level them. And it doesn't happen. Notice how he describes them. They don't have any trouble. All the way till death. They are happy from the moment they're born to the moment they die. Nothing comes up against them. They're described as fat and happy. And fat not in the American sense where we kind of say, that's not a very good thing. Fat in the ancient sense, which means they have plenty of food. They've got everything they could possibly want. They are completely taken care of. The wicked prosper. And yet, Asaph, one who has dedicated his life to being pure in heart, he suffers all day, every day. He said, morning till evening, every single day, I'm suffering to the point where he questions, is it even worth it? Verse 13, all in vain. Have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence? Asaph says, I have spent my life being pure in heart, living for God, dedicated to his righteousness. And what do I have to show for it? 
I'm miserable and the wicked are happy. What is the point? And you see how from a certain perspective, that would look true. Because from an earthly perspective, you have very little to gain from being a Christian. From an earthly perspective, you have very little to gain from being pure in heart. I mean, sure, you get a pretty nice family here. But we all know you can sit here and enjoy everybody's company and still go out and live however you want when you leave. What is the point of following God's commandments? And that's what this psalm hinges on. And this first section looks at it from man's perspective, from the world's perspective. And it's not a good look. Because from the world's perspective, you can live however you want and be just fine and just, just happy. Whereas living pure in heart and following God doesn't end so well. To the point where Asaph thinks about joining the wicked. Throwing away his pure heart. But something doesn't sit right with him. Because you remember, verse 1 starts, God is good to those who are pure in heart. Asaph knows that. Asaph knows that God is good to those who are good. And yet, when he looks out in the world, it doesn't seem true. Like we said, life is unfair. And so before Asaph throws away his faith, he says, I've got to be thinking about this from the wrong perspective. I have to be missing something. And notice what he says in verses 15 through 17. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Asaph says, no, I can't abandon God. I can't abandon God's children. That would be the people of Israel. So basically, Asaph's saying, I can't abandon God. I can't, as we would say, abandon the church. But how do I figure this out? He said, for me to figure it out feels like a wearisome task. For me to figure it out feels impossible. And I think that's something a lot of us can sympathize with. That if I had to figure out how to balance life on earth, that's just not going to happen. But Asaph goes to the only one who has the answers. Asaph dedicates himself to the sanctuary of God, to coming before God's presence, gleaning the wisdom that God has to offer. Because man's wisdom says, there's no point in being pure in heart. You've got nothing to gain from it. 
But God's wisdom, it says, Asaph sees their end. Do you see the shift here? Because when Asaph in the first 14 verses, he's looking at what he can see, feel, touch. He's looking at what's right in front of him. And from that perspective, there's no point in being pure in heart. But when Asaph dedicates himself to God's wisdom, when Asaph dedicates himself to the greater perspective, Asaph has a heavenly, spiritual, we would say eternal perspective because he sees the way that God does work justice for the good. And let's see what Asaph realizes. If you want to pick back up in verse 18. And we'll read through the end of the psalm. Truly, you set the wicked in slippery places. You make them to fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and I was ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. And you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works." When Asaph sees the end of everything, he receives a greater perspective. He said, you're right. From the world's perspective, it looks like the wicked are happy, that they never face any trials, that everything's good for them. But Asaph realizes God is going to come to make things right. And that means that he's going to be a terror to the wicked and he's going to be a refuge to those who are pure in heart. We would say Asaph received an eternal perspective. I think some of the things Asaph says in this song may even be more true than he realizes. And we'll talk about that in a second. But this realization that Asaph comes to is that even though the world says that the wicked will succeed and flourish and they're happy, that's a lie. That in the end, when God comes in judgment, the evil will be punished for their oppression and their pride and their violence. Truly, they will fall in the end. And that sort of knocks Asaph back to his senses. He gets cut to the heart or pricked to the heart, it says, of a sentence that we are very familiar with. And when Asaph is cut to the heart, it reveals a penitent heart. Asaph says, 
I was being completely foolish. When I was blinded by my envy and my desire for the things in the world, I was nothing more than a beast of the field. Which kind of sounds a little weird to us, but what Asaph is saying is, I was not thinking with the soul that I was provided. I was thinking just based off of impulses, no better than any other animal. I wasn't using the brain and the soul that God gave me when I was focused on the things of this world. But, he says in verse 23, which I find remarkable, nevertheless, I am continually with you and you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It almost like Asaph pictures it is, yes, I almost slipped. I almost failed God completely. But yet, through this whole perspective shift, through this whole journey, God is still holding my right hand, guiding me to this greater wisdom. Guiding me to this greater perspective. That even though Asaph may fail, God never can. And that's how Asaph comes to this greater conclusion that there's nothing worth wanting on this world beside God because in the first cha- in the first half of the chapter Asaph was tempted by power and riches and comfort comfort's a big one I don't want to suffer I don't want that if I could spend the rest of my life and never have another bad thing happen to me I'd sign up for that in a heartbeat Think most of us would. And so when Asaph sees that the good suffer and the evil are comforted, that's a temptation. He wants that. To the point where he almost is willing to trade God for it. And when Asaph realizes the end of all things... Asaph realizes how foolish he has been. He said there is nothing on this earth that is worth trading God for. We would say that there is, you could have the whole world and it wouldn't be worth it to lose your soul. Asaph realizes that God is what this life is about. To live is Christ. Because God is the source of all blessings and all joy. He is the purpose of this life. The only thing worth striving for. And that realization is worth being pure in heart for. That realization guides Asaph to a future end of glory, which is a remarkable peek into Asaph's mind. Because Asaph, he said earlier that the wicked prosper all the way to their death. 
And Asaph doesn't explicitly say here that there's an afterlife. And that's why I said I think some of the things that Asaph says may be more true than he even realized. But he says that after his body fails, after my flesh and bone and my physical heart, after they give out, God will still be my strength and God will be my portion forever. When Asaph looks through God's wisdom to the end of all things, he realizes that there are blessings, we would say beyond this life, for those who are pure in heart. And that leads him to the conclusion Verse 27 and 28, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. For I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of your works. This is the exact opposite of what we saw in the first half of the psalm. Now, in verse 1, Asaph said, truly God is good to Israel, to those pure in heart, but he stumbled. Whereas here, this is sort of the other end of it. Not only is God good to those who are pure in heart, but he also will judge those who are violent and wicked. And Asaph says, for me... I know which one of those two sides I want to be on. I know which one of those two sides is worth suffering in this life for. Because notice, Asaph doesn't come to a conclusion that the wicked, or that the, uh, there will never be good things that happen to the wicked, and that there will never be suffering that happens to the righteous. That doesn't happen in this psalm. Asaph never comes to the conclusion that his life is going to be easy now that he's dedicated himself further to God. That's not the message. The message is it's worth it because I know what the end is. It's worth it because I know that God will be good to those who are pure in heart. And so that's the psalm, this journey of Asaph from the point of almost giving up on God altogether, sort of sparring with God in a way that kind of makes us uncomfortable. Grieving, airing out his grievances about how unfair the world is, all the way to the point of saying, you know what, God's worth suffering for. Asaph goes from being isolated from God to in a greater relationship with him, devoted to God's perspective in complete trust. We see a heart tempted by the world and then healed by God. So that's Asaph's story. But the question is, what is our story? What does that mean for us? You know, I thought about talking about the parable of the sower and how there's good soils and bad soils. And we were going to read through that and talk about how sometimes we like to say that we are the good soil because we're sitting here in church. And that's not how it works. Because the bad soil, two of the, two of the bad soils, they are tempted by pressure from the world. We would say persecution and suffering. 
and they're tempted by the riches and pleasures of the world. Those are the same things Asaph's tempted by. Those are the same things that the leaders, one of the leaders of God's people, was almost drawn away completely from God for. So it's really easy to check a box and say, we're the good soil. But I want you to really think about this. I want you to grapple with this psalm. Because life is unfair. This broken earthly life is inherently unfair. Good people are going to suffer. We talked about that some in the gospel meeting. Maybe they'll suffer for being pure in heart. Maybe they'll suffer for their faith. Or maybe they're just going to suffer because we live in a broken world. Probably some of both. And some of the worst of the worst are those who are going to succeed in this life. So you have to decide what's worth it to you. There's a poem from the 1800s. Barry will tell me when I'm wrong here. Um, But it's about a traveler that goes to some distant land. And he comes upon some ruins. And there's this inscription that says, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. And then you look around, and it's just ruins. There's nothing left. The greatest of riches and power that the world has to offer, and it comes to nothing. What are you building? What is worth selling your soul for? What is worth getting distracted from God for? Because if what you're looking for in this life is comfort, if what you're looking for this life is riches, if what you're looking for this life is power, the Christian way isn't for you. I can't guarantee you any of those things. But if what you're looking for is in the end, when your body fails, that you still have strength through God, And you still have a portion forever in him. Then welcome to the family. It's going to be a hard road. But it's going to be worth it. And so what's worth it to you? Because if you try to build a legacy for yourself in this life. You might for a while. A lot of us know about our grandparents. Some of us know about our great grandparents. But once you start getting three, four, five generations back, I don't know any of those people. You can't build a forever legacy for yourself in this world. But God is willing to freely give you eternal life, strength, a portion in him. What is worth it to you? At the end of the psalm, after Asaph has looked at, we would say, the summation of all things, 
He's seen that the wicked prosper and the good suffer. And yet, when he saw the end, when he saw the payoff, he said, for me, it is good to be near God. It's worth the suffering. It's worth the hard road. Is it worth it to you? Let's pray and be dismissed to our classes. Father, help us to grow in you. Help us to look past this world's suffering. Help us to look past the fleeting pleasures of sin. And help us to desire a relationship with you above all things. We ask that you purify our hearts. We ask that you help us stay focused on your perspective. We ask that when we fall and when we slip, that you grant us to come into your presence, to come into a greater relationship and trust in you, that we may be strengthened in our hearts and that we may have a portion with you forever. We love you and we are humbly grateful for all the blessings that you have given us. And it's in your son's name we pray, amen.